I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. This is Play Me, your digital theater. We transform the hottest contemporary plays into bingeable audio dramas. I'm Laura Mullen. And I'm Chris Tolley. Hi, and welcome to Playme's special series, The Show Must Go On, featuring our interview with Drew Hayden Taylor, the playwright behind Sir John A. MacDonald, Acts of a Gentrified Ojibwe Rebellion. This contemporary comedy about the life and legacy of Canada's first Prime Minister is told through the lens of Bobby Rabbit, an Indigenous man who plans to dig up Sir John A.'s bones in exchange for his grandfather's medicine bundle. Drew Hayden Taylor is an award-winning Ojibwe playwright, journalist, novelist, and humorist from the Curve Lake First Nation. As a playwright, Drew has written more than 20 plays, including Toronto at Dreamer's Rock, Only Drunken Children Tell the Truth, The Berlin Blues, and Cottagers and Indians. He has won numerous awards over his three-decade career, including the Floyd S. Chalmers Award, a Dora Maver Moore Award, and the Canadian Authors Literary Award. You can also see his play turned documentary, Cottagers and Indians, on CBC Gem. I talked to Drew, who is visiting Toronto from Curve Lake First Nation. We had the chance to talk about why he decided to tackle the daunting task of writing a comedy about Sir John A., what he thinks about Canada's colonial statues and symbols, and how he went from self-taught to nationally celebrated. This is my interview with Drew Hayden Taylor. So I just wanted to start by asking you, how how are you doing during this uh, strange time? Have you been able to write? How are you coping? (sighs) Yeah, I'm, I'm feeling quite guilty by the fact that I've been doing pretty good. I know so many of my other artist friends, especially performers, are these are these are uh, dark and stormy times. But I've been putting this time to good use. I finished a novel. I just started a nonfiction book that I'm putting together. I'm doing post-production on a documentary series for APTN. Uh, as I said, I'm going back and forth to home. Uh, so I've actually been pretty productive and i've been doing a number of webinars uh, i was joking with um, a publisher friend of mine about the fact that in about a year's time there's going to be a huge increase in babies and divorces and novels not necessarily in that order what's interesting you say that because i can definitely see the babies and absolutely see the divorces but it's interesting because a lot of the writers that I've talked to on play me have said that they that they haven't been able to be creative that it's been hard that's a that's, that's ironic you say that because that's exactly what the publisher told me that a lot of people are, not, are 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 feeling inhibited or not feeling inspired which I I have trouble understanding to me it's just you know I love traveling that's what I, a lot of chunk of what I do but haven't been able to do that. Been here, been given this wonderful chunk to sit down and focus. 
yeah, I, I, I don't have a problem with writing in the, in the time of, of COVID. So you're one of those rare people that can turn Twitter off. Twitter doesn't consume me. I don't have Facebook. I refuse to get Facebook because I've had so many people tell me it can just eat up your day. And uh, I don't really think I'm that fascinating. So I'm happy to do my Twitter. I do my humorous Twitters uh, a couple times a day. And then uh, just, just get to work and write and write and write. I'm a storyteller and the stories don't wait for perfect times. I've also had some writers say that they weren't sure if what they were writing before the pandemic and then before the protests is relevant to what, what the times are now. Have you had that feeling at all or, or maybe even you felt it's more relevant? Uh no, because because pandemics have come and gone in the past, troubles have come and gone, and frequently our literature is how we deal through some of these difficulties, especially as a First Nation person. So as this overuse cliche I've heard repeatedly in the last four months, this too shall pass, and you know there's going to be there's going to be a time where there's going to be you know all these COVID-related books, novels, plays, short stories will be coming out soon. So it's it's having an impact on our present day life, and I think momentarily on what we're writing. But I don't I don't really think, unless something really severe happens, that it's gonna it's gonna leave a permanent mar on everything. I mean, so many people barely remember SARS now. That's true. Um, I also wonder if it plays a little bit into the whole idea of white fragility, because a lot of us haven't experienced hardship. I had this conversation with uh, a playwright who's South Asian from Trinidad, and we talked about how, you know, people who have been born and raised, particularly white people in Canada, haven't really ever experienced not being able to have access to things when they wanted or be able to go places when they want. And it's sort of, for some of us, our first time and is as sad as that is, this would seem like hardship. Do you think being Indigenous has made you have more resilience? I think so. I think so. I mean, we're, we're used to social isolation, right? And I remember once, like when I was, when I was a teenager, early 20s, Christmas, sitting around. I come from a very big family. My mother was the oldest of 14, which is what used to happen before they had the internet. And so uh, Christmas, there'd be aunts, uncles. I had like 20, 25 first cousins. So we'd have these big Christmas dinners across at my grandparents. And we'd all be there. And I remember one time listening to all my aunts and uncles sit there and talk. And, then, you know, we just had this huge meal of mashed potatoes, of turkey, of stuffing, all these different things. And people are getting into all these different kinds of pies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I remember my, my aunts and uncles sitting around and they were commenting on how this was going to affect their blood sugar levels. And I found this very, very curious. And I and I, I asked around, I did an impromptu poll, and I discovered that 42% of my immediate family was diabetic, right? Which is endemic in the First Nations community. And so I, I ended up reading it, writing an article about that. And all of a sudden, about two, three years ago, I became diabetic. So we're used to we're used to stuff like this happening. I mean, I don't need to go into the whole smallpox, measles stuff that happened 100, 200, 300 years ago, etc. We're still dealing with various levels of, of that, of mercury poisoning, all different kinds of, of health-related issues coming from colonization. And, you know, I don't mean to dismiss the importance of this, but this is, this is just the next in the long line. Yeah, exactly, exactly. 
So I want to ask you for anyone who hasn't yet seen your play, Sir John A. Acts of Ojibwe Rebellion, or heard it on Play Me, if you can just tell us a little bit about what it is about. Uh, it's a play sort of looking at dealing with history. In this current time, I mean, you know, it's so interesting. You can you watch the news and there's a statues being torn down all over the place, whether it's Columbus, whether it's John A., whether it's, it's, it's rebel Confederate leaders down in the States. And, well, basically, the basic premise of the story started with an email from Jillian Kiley from National Arts Center, who it was uh, Canada 150, and I think her chairman of the board or somebody on the board was commenting that this is Canada's 150th birthday. We should do something to celebrate Sir John A. Macdonald since he's the, the architect who put this all together. And Jillian, to her credit, was not really interested in doing another dusty, boring bio of a, of a, of a bygone leader. And she came up with the idea of, well, okay, then let's do a bio of Sir John A., but let's do it from a First Nations perspective. And God bless her, she thought of me. And my, my first reaction was, I thought that was very unusual. Why call me? I'm not exactly known for doing plays about dead white politicians. But there's a lot there to be mined. And I became more and more fascinated with tackling it. So I sat down and I tackled it. But I tackled it from an avant-garde, postmodern, weird, wonderful different way of, of approaching history because it's not only is it a historical play not only is it a, bio, a biographical play it's a comedy it's a musical it's a social protest i put everything but the kitchen sink into the play and as a result when i saw it originally performed in ottawa the audience loved it in fact i remember jillian kylie told keith barker who is artistic director of native earth who was producing the play for the last spring, he says, you know, the vast majority of my audience are old and white and they loved it. Even though they were being lectured and told unpleasant things, they loved it because while the message is all there, while the anger is there, it's quoted in humor and music and it makes it a lot more palatable. And evidently the audience just hoovered it up. And I was very, very proud of the production and um, the audience reaction. That made me wonder when I when I was reading it and when I heard it, was it a, a white audience, a mainstream audience that you had in mind? I would have to say normally and, and in this particular condition, I think it's just, you know, an, an exploration of ratios. 80 to 90% of the people who go and see Native plays, who go and buy Native books are non-Native. If I was to survive strictly on royalties from native audiences and, and native book buyers, I'd be a much thinner man. I, I thought it was just such an accessible piece. I, I can't speak obviously for an indigenous audience, but for a white audience. And I thought what was so smart about it was that you took some of the, you know, I would say even fairly, you know, at least in their own minds, liberal thinking white people and their perspectives on John A and he being a man of his times. And you sort of poke holes in that argument. I know I've become very weary of the term in context. You have to understand so-and-so in context. And, and as a writer and as a closet historian, etc., I understand the concept of context. But I mean, basically that means I can do whatever I want right now. And hopefully I can say in a hundred years, people will look at whatever I did in context. And like in, in a weird sort of way, I'm also, because of all that thing, I'm 
I'm in a foggy gray area concerning this whole statue thing. I'm, I'm not sure tearing down all these statues is the right thing to do. It's like hiding history. Hiding history doesn't do anybody good. You want to see a, a statue of Columbus, of Sir John A., that is fine as long as there's an understanding of why that statue was originally built and what, uh, why it is no longer invoked. Put up another statue behind it, put a plaque, any of a number of ways of addressing the issue. Wiping it out of existence, I'm frequently wondering if that's the right way to approach stuff. That's really interesting, and that was one of the things I was going to ask you, in particular with symbols of uh, Sir John A. Macdonald and how they make you feel when you see them. And I, and I think when I hear people wanting to remove things like that, I, I understand when people say that is history and you can't just pretend it didn't happen. But then I also understand how hurtful it would be to have symbols like this in statues on money. When when you see Sir John A., and I, I have to say I did some more research on him, and I probably haven't studied much about him since I was in school, which was a while ago now. I was like really uh, aghast at what I read, and it wasn't what I was taught. Yeah. So you don't feel that those things are too painful to see? You feel like a plaque or something explaining uh, it in context and, uh, would help? Uh, I don't know about a plaque. Plaques are plaques. And I don't want to take away from anybody's pain. You know, like recently, in this whole thing about the Washington Redskins, you know, talking about that, I mean, that's this disgraceful, and I would never advocate for keeping that. But I remember I did a, I, I do humorous politically oriented tweets, and a friend of mine tweeted me back saying, you shouldn't even use the term Redskins regardless of what you're talking about. You just call it the Washington team. The use of the word Redskins sort of helps proliferate the problem and so but uh, you know also as a journalist i'm sort of like yes but i do want people specifically to know what i am rallying against so it, it, it's a it's a gray area and that's actually one of the things i found interesting about doing the play coming in to do a biography of sir john a i was tempted just to come in and you know do black and white have him wear the black hat twirling the mustache be the evil guy but very, very rarely do people wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to do evil things today. Sir John A. thought he was doing good things. He thought he was, he thought he was doing amazing things. And he was an incredibly popular politician. He was gregarious. He'd go out. Yes, he was an alcoholic. That, 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 that's a whole different set of problems. But, I mean, you look at some of the other things. As I went through in the play, his last criminal case was defending a Mohawk man accused of murder and he got him off on manslaughter for six months. When he, when he first got here as a child, he, he sang in a children's, a Mohawk children's choir. So like, it's like you get these things and you sort of said, how does that fit in with what the other, what the other stuff tells us? And it's so interesting, just the shades of gray. I find that's where the drama is. I mean, one of the best examples I can use over using the metaphor is the difference between Winston Churchill and Adolf Hitler. Winston Churchill was a manic depressive who smoked, was surly, was a curmudgeon, and drank to excesses. Hitler was a vegetarian who loved children and dogs. Right? So it's like, I find that the gray areas are dramatically very interesting. We'll be back after this with Laura Mullen's interview with Drew Hayden Taylor. I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. 
don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I, I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. I have to say when we were promoting the podcast of your play when it came out on Canada Day, on Facebook, which I know you're not on, but it, the post that we put on was a lightning rod for comments. Really? Oh my God. Yeah. It became like, it was about the play and it was about Sir John A. And then it just, as things do online, morphed into 8 million different um, arguments and discussions. But I was just so shocked at the lightning rod that bringing up Sir John A. got us to. Because I guess people were arguing, and you do put it in your play, where he wanted Native people to have the vote. Um, yeah. He did, did do some things that were, I, some people would view as positive, and then he did a lot of things that were awful. And, and so he, it is a complicated figure and a complicated part of our past. Did you anticipate that it would be so not controversial, but just such a lightning rod of discussion. See, I haven't come across, I've come across very little of that. The response I've had has been incredibly overwhelming. Um, the response in Ottawa, I mean, one of the things that taught me how successful the play was, was at the end during that last song by Cheap Trick, I want you to want me. And everybody comes out and sing and it becomes a big, big party. And he's running up and down the aisles high-fiving people in the audience as everybody's rocking on. And there were so many people that refused to high-five him. Out of, out, of, out of protest against Sir John A., they just sort of sit, close their arms and look away. And Martin, like, when, every time that happened, Martin just loved it because it sort of was a sign of how successful his portrayal of the character was. It just really pointed to what a controversial figure, how some people don't want to let go of the idea of the goodness of Canada and some people would point out the nuances. It was interesting for sure. So in the premise of the play, you have Bobby Rabbit who wants to go and dig up the bones of Sir John A. in Kingston to hold them ransom to get his uh, grandfather's medicine bundle back. And along the way, you pick up a bit of a foil for Bobby in the character of Anya. And she challenges some of his thinking and vice versa. And I, and I thought it was really interesting that you had that person be a white feminist woman who is also a lesbian and has her own um, story and perspective. Why did you choose to have that character as opposed to, say, a white person who was just uh, ignorant or racist, which would have obviously allowed for a lot of conflict? Um, blatant racism I, is, I find dramatically uninteresting. Once you get over the immediate shock of it, it's, it, there's only so far you can go with it. I want to create Anya. But I just wanted her to be a nice, interesting, fairly believable cross-cut of Canadian society. You know, yes, I've added some, I've sort of pushed the envelope a bit by making her white, making her female, making her a lesbian, and making her, of all things, work at the Sir John A. house. You know, it's very convenient and very cool. But I just sort of would look at, at, at you know, over, over my 58 years, the hundreds and hundreds of non-Native people I've met who have a middle-class sense of guilt and empathy for native people and are willing are willing to believe anything at one point she says you know yes i completely support a nice round dance stopping traffic in the middle of the street and at point he says well you know traffic blockage is only so successful on the longer picture 
Um, so I just, I just felt it was interesting. He did need a foil, and I wanted to give him somebody as smart, if not smarter than him. Hugh has a certain function as the storyteller and his conscience, but I needed somebody who had a, a, as good a working knowledge or better working knowledge of the fundamentals of Canadian history that uh, Bobby had. And he provides a lot of humor along the way. I find it very difficult to write anything without humor. Yeah, and I wanted to ask you about that because I feel like the humor in the play just opens an audience up to hear more than if it was um, something very dark or angry. And so I wondered how conscious of a choice it was to use humor to reach an audience and have it touch them and, and impact them. Uh, I, I'm very wary of using the term conscious because one of the first things I've learned in life as a humorist is the minute you try to be funny is the moment you sound like you're trying to be funny. I, I tell this to up and coming writers and I don't know if it makes any sense. I didn't even know how to explain it better, but the humor's really got to be organic. It's got to come from the characters. It's got to come from the situation. And I really do try not to be funny for the sake of being funny. So almost everything that happened in there as I was writing it, it came organically the, from the characters doing their thing. And sometimes I'd look at it and go, wow, that's, that's pretty funny. How did I think of that? A third of it is planned, a third of it is subconscious, and a third of it is accidental. I also wonder as a writer if um, when, you, when you are writing plays about heady subjects or, or anything where, where there is not a message, but there is some, something that the audience is going to take away that they didn't know about before, how, how you manage to not have the message overpower the, the drama or the humor or the entertainment of the play, because I feel like that is something that a lot of writers get stuck with, where it becomes a little bit like heavy handed in, in the, um, the messaging. How do you navigate that as a writer? I mean, yes, I know what you're saying, and I do not have an answer for you. Uh, one thing I unfortunately I always tell people of is that I've actually I've never taken a writing course in my life. I have no idea what I do or how I do it. It's primarily instinctive. You know, I'm one of these people that sometimes the story creates the characters. Other time I come up with interesting characters and I have to create the story around them. So it's, it's very difficult for me to tell people or to explain the fact that I don't sit there and I don't weigh it. I just, I just sort of sit back and think, you know, I, on any of us, on me, you, anybody, there's a certain amount of sociopolitical issues that are important to our lives that can creep into our everyday conversations. And I think we both know people who they find it hard to talk about anything else. In fact, I do, I, I think Anya talks about friends of hers, about cis this and patriarchy that. And she says, Every once in a while, you just want to have a glass of wine and, and, and make fun of your ex. So I always have to keep in mind that sort of thing that when I'm going in, unless it's a specific characteristic that I'm trying to do, it, it's just, again, an organic thing that I'm, I try to keep, keep abreast of what's going on. Is everything you write a comedy? There's a couple, couple that have been more dramatic with some humor. Um, I was once commissioned by Native Earth Performing Arts a few years back. Uh, they wanted, I was the writer in residence, and I had a meeting with the artistic director, and the artistic director told me that, Drew, I know you can be funny, but I want you to be serious. I mean, it, sound, it sounds so weird to me because, you know, if, you, if you're bringing in somebody who's very good at something and you want them to do something different, what's, what's the point? You know, if you have a lot of people in the native community, a lot of writers 
who are very good at writing dark and depressing and bleak, sad things, are you going to get them to write comedies? I don't think comedy does not have a lot of respect. So I can do both. Um, I just prefer to do comedy because comedy heals. An elder from the Blood Reserve once told me, in his opinion, for Native people, humor is the WD-40 of healing. And that's very important to me. So many other First Nation authors write about, uh, all their stories are dark, depressing, bleak, sad, and angry. All their characters are either oppressed, depressed, or suppressed. And that's understandable because when an oppressed people get their voice back, they're going to write about being oppressed. So that makes perfect sense. In the opening essay for Red Sisters, in the published version of Red Sisters, Thompson Highway likes using the term, before the healing can take place, the poison must be exposed. And I think that's what was happening. But so many other better writers than me are tackling that. And as I said, this, uh, this elder told me about the importance of humor in our culture. And I decided that was my journey. Do you think that's sort of your unique voice, too, that, that you are um, Indigenous and you do work in humor? And I would say that you kind of stand out for that, that there's not a lot of writers that are, can fill that niche. I think so. I mean, there, there's no, when I started out 25, 30 years ago, yes. This was before Tom King. I don't know if you remember his radio show, Dead Dog Cafe, yeah. which, again, let the dominant culture in Canada realize, oh, Native people have a sense of humor. And it began to develop more and more awareness of it. I still, I think, am one of the few people still doing humor. You know, there, but there are other Native writers, young ones that are coming up that are sort of putting more humor in their work. But I'd have to say, overall, the vast majority of, of contemporary Indigenous theatre coming out of our communities highlight the dysfunctional aspect of the Native community. I, w- I want to also ask you about your development, um, both as a humorist and as a writer. I understand that you grew up on a reserve in Curve Lake. Did your love of storytelling and comedy grow there, or where did it come from for you? Um, yeah, it grew up there. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm a thousand years old. When I was growing up, we had two or three television stations, most of which were snowy. And there's only so many times you can climb trees, go swimming, all that sort of stuff. So I escaped into literature. I loved reading and I would read these books. Every book was a passport to someplace interesting and, and special. So I developed a fondness for reading. And then from there into writing and storytelling, all of that. I mean, I come from a culture that is rich in storytelling. I lived right across from my grandparents and during the summer, there'd be bonfires two, three times a week and extended members of my family would come sit around the bonfire and tell funny stories. I grew up listening to funny stories. And when it was time for me to go to bed, I lived right across the road. We didn't have noisy air conditioners. We were just had mosquito screening and I could still hear the stories as I went to sleep. That became my lullaby. And my family was horrendously funny. And I actually never thought I was funny. It wasn't until I was well into my career until several people started saying, oh, you're a funny writer. And I went, really? So my, my understanding of humor came from my community because humor was how we survived. And it is how we told stories. It's very rare you'll find a, a traditional story that doesn't have humor in it. I want to know when you first realized you were a writer, you said you weren't trained in it formally. When did you know that that was the path that you would take? Well, I always liked being a writer. I always wanted to be a writer, but my grade 11 English teacher told me there was no point. You cannot make a living in creative writing in Canada. And my mother, when I told her I wanted to be a writer, looked at me and said, why do you want to be a writer? It's not going to get you anywhere. 
So I actually gave up wanting to be a writer, but I like the arts because the thing about the arts is you can create something amazing, wonderful, beautiful, and fabulous out of nothing, out of your imagination. And if I couldn't be an artist, I wanted to hang with artists. And so I spent most of my early 20s working in various jobs affiliated with the arts, but not as an artist. And I ended up working for a television series that was shooting a series about a fictional native community in Northwestern Ontario. I just literally knocked on the door and said, you're doing this series. I'm native. I grew up on a reserve. Hire me. And they did. And while working there, I sort of developed an understanding of structure. And television is highly structured. I think that opened a lot of doors for me. And through a bizarre series of circumstances, I ended up doing an article for a magazine in Canada on adapting native stories into a television and film format. And I was talking with the story producer of a, a television series at the time. One of us suggested I submit some story ideas just for the heck of it. I did. They bought it. And I ended up writing this season ender for a show called The Beachcombers. And then from there, I started writing Street Legal, North of 60. Thompson Highway had uh, gotten this grant for a writer in residency program at Native Earth. At that time... There were perhaps two working Native playwrights in all of Canada, himself and Daniel David Moses. He was desperate. He did what a lot of desperate people do. He went to the bottom of the barrel, and there I was, passed out. And he offered me the job, and I said no. But keep in mind, I was also between contracts, and I had a very hungry landlord that liked to be fed on a regular basis. <laughs> Thompson cheated. He said, look at it this way, Drew. He just sit through the rehearsal of two plays, maybe write a play at the end of it. It's 20 weeks' work. And you get a big chunk of money every week for those 20 weeks. And I said, when do I start? So my big joke on all that is I am literally one of the few people you'll meet that got into theater for the money. <laughs> right? You don't hear that very often, no. That is literally my introduction to theater. So I signed on and I learned all about theater. And, um, and like I wrote a play because I was supposed to write a play. So I wrote this three-act monstrosity with these bizarre monologues. I had no idea what I was doing. The number of plays I'd seen could count on my fingers. A lot of people saw, uh, told me that they saw potential in it, but I gave up on it. I was not interested in theater. It was too hard, not enough money, and I didn't really understand it. And then the artistic director of the Bajamajik Theater contacted me, and he said, I need a play for the fall to tour. Can you write me something? And I said, thank you. Uh, I'll pass. I tried it. Not my cup of tea. Try somebody else. And he says, I'll give you $800. And I said, when do you want it? <laughs> and so I decided to write this one, but I decided to try something different. I decided to write something I would want to watch. So I decided to write something that, about issues that were important to me. It dealt with identity. What does it mean to be First Nations? And lo and behold, even though I knew nothing of theater, I sort of hit it out of the park and it became a huge hit. And I won the Floyd Chalmers Award for it, for outstanding new play. And that consisted of a check for $10,000, which I almost lost in a bar that night. But that's another story. <laughs> um, and suddenly, a friend of mine who'd seen some of the articles I'd written, who'd seen my beachcombers, walk up to me, hugged me, and said, Drew, I think you finally found your medium. And I suddenly said to myself, oh, my God, I'm a playwright. How the hell did that happen? What is it about theater, do you think, that works for you? Why do you do so much theater now? Well, I like the immediate audience interaction. I love watching the audience laugh, and I love watching the audience cry. I love that immediacy. 
And so it's also in its own way, very close to traditional storytelling. And I, I feel that connection when I'm, when I'm looking at the audience and telling them a story that they get wrapped up in. And what do you think is the future for theater given the circumstances we're in now? Do you think it'll have a renaissance? I'm hoping it'll have a renaissance. Like, I, Yes, I'm part of the converted here. I, dr I drank the theater Kool-Aid, but I am dying to get out of this house and go to a movie or go see a play. They have been saying theater is dying ever since movies came along and then television, right? And all these different things. So theater is always imperiled, but it seems to be doing well. This little five, six month hiccup, I don't think, I hope is not the death knell. It's hard to imagine that it will be, but it's a, it's a hard time. Absolutely. Did you have any issues with the idea of um, translating your play for a digital audience? Not really. Uh, storytelling is malleable. You can do it in anything. You can tell a story around a campfire, and then you can write it as a book, then you can write it as a movie. There, I know there are many writers out there who shudder at the thought of adapting their work into movies and theaters. To me, it's just a different way of telling that story. And, and one last question for you. I was reading an article that you had written for the Globe and Mail, and I think it was coming out of the time when um, Yolanda Bonnell um, and her play Bug, and she had asked for critics who were not Indigenous, Black, or people of color to please not review her play. And you wrote an article about who, who, who has the right to review work by those artists. Can you talk a little bit about that? Um, I sort of understand where it's coming from because our storytelling comes from a long tradition. The stories we tell at this point are still deal with the, the pains of colonization. There's a term I came up with to describe a lot of contemporary native theater, post-contact stress disorder. A lot of that is a result of white intervention. And I think white people need to understand, to see and appreciate the trials and tribulations of contemporary indigenous life. And so they need to see it. I, what is the term I used? White critics, almost like Lewis, Lewis and Clark, going in to look at the native people, getting a lot of things wrong, but a lot of people will not go see a play unless they see the review first. Well, thank you so much, Drew. It was a pleasure to get to talk to you today. Thank you so much for letting us record Sir John A. Well, we hope that we'll be able to see it on stage very soon. Indubitably. I hope you enjoy your uh, your summer day. Thank you. I will. And go turn your air conditioning on. I will. That was Laura's interview with Drew Hayden Taylor. To listen to Sir John A. MacDonald, Acts of a Gentrified Ojibwe Rebellion, subscribe to Play Me on Apple or Google Podcasts or the CBC Listen app. And while you're there, please consider rating and reviewing us. You can let us know what you think of our podcast by emailing us at playme at cbc.ca. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at playmepodcast or Twitter at expecttheatre. This is the last episode of our The Show Must Go On series. Special thanks to all of you for listening, the playwrights, the actors, and everyone at CBC Podcasts for making this special series possible during the pandemic of 2020. We're excited to tell you that we're back very soon with a brand new summer audio fiction series, The Quarantine Chronicles, where we've invited seven of Canada's leading playwrights to riff on these very strange times. 
Until then, be sure to check out our entire collection of plays turned audio dramas, available for free on the Play Me feed. Stay well. Special thanks to our CBC producers, Fabiola Melendez-Carletti, Cecil Fernandez, and Tanya Springer. The executive producer of CBC Podcasts is Arif Narani. The senior director of audio innovation is Leslie Merklinger. Play Me's associate producer is Pippa Johnstone. Play Me is funded by the Canada Council for the Arts and the Ontario Arts Council. Play Me is produced by Expect Theatre in partnership with CBC Podcasts. For more information on our plays and artists, please visit playmepodcast.com. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.